this from Bhopal. Um, I assume after the chemical spill there. Um, but he's done a, a, a fair amount of research um, and investigation into cancer and the treatment of cancer um, in India and has uh, given workshops and talks on this issue. Um, the area that uh, we overlap in that's, that's really interesting, I, you know, at the Norris Cotton Cancer Center, we're interested in not only in um, treating patients in this country, but we're also interested in how cancer care gets delivered in, um, in other countries that aren't so fortunate as ours uh, in terms of uh, economics. And um, this is going to be a really interesting discussion from the standpoint of how we deliver cancer drugs uh, to patients in developing countries. We've got cancer drugs that we're making in this country now that we're not even sure how we can pay for, much less how to deliver them more widely um, beyond um, developing developed nations such as ourselves. And and uh, that's what uh, Dr. Banerjee is going to talk about today. So uh, without any further introduction, thanks a lot for coming to talk to us. And uh, welcome, uh, welcome. Hello. Good. Can, can everyone hear me? Thanks, James, for inviting me. It's a real pleasure to come and talk to people. Uh, at the medical school, it's sometimes a two-culture divide that's still hard to get past. I do a lot of talking at social science and humanities-based uh, events and workshops. It's a real pleasure to be able to talk at Hitchcock. What I want to talk about today really builds up from two years of uh, field research that I did in India. Uh, focusing on cancer care, its social, cultural, and political aspects, uh, mostly in the northern part of the country, uh, in and around New Delhi, the capital region. So part of the things I was interested in was looking at how, for the first time in India, cancer was being thought of as a public health priority. And it's a shift that's happening with public health, uh, especially in the developing countries where older uh, diseases are being shifted and rethought, and newer disease are, diseases such as cancer being brought into the public health paradigm. But to think about cancer as a public health priority made the government wonder very quickly about things that James has already been, uh, uh, started, talking, uh, started us talking off about. Uh, they started wondering about how to pay for the drugs that they were going to use to treat a massive population of cancer patients in a densely concentrated urban area, New Delhi. Uh, the hospital I did most of my work in uh, and the NGOs that I worked with uh, associated to the hospital uh, were located at the heart of the city. The hospital's name is the All India Institute for the Medical Sciences. It's one of the largest hospitals anywhere in the world. It treats about five to six million outpatients annually. Uh, the, uh, the, uh, the, the, I spend most of my time in the uh, cancer center there, which treats about 150 outpatients a day. Uh, it, uh, uh, so this was where I was located uh, for most of my ethnographic work. So talking to the doctors there, talking uh, to the patients there, I began to realize that cancer drug pricing was a crucial, crucial, urgent, life-saving issue that they all were thinking about, that they were all concerned about. But no one could quite figure out yet what pricing would look like, uh, why the prices continued to be so high, why, unlike other therapies that the government uh, paid a lot of attention to in terms of its uh, controlling of how high the prices could go. Cancer drugs were just about coming into conversation in terms of what the government thought its responsibility was towards uh, its uh, public health uh, clients and what they thought they could do in relation to the global pricing of the drugs. So just to uh, reiterate, this is just my disclosure. I do not have any financial interests associated with this project. Much easier to do that as a social scientist. Um, so the debate I want to really focus on today and then follow the implications of were, is a debate that started off around one of these big blockbuster drugs that you might all be familiar with, Glivec, Novartis's Glivec, a breakthrough therapy for CML. And this is a drug that uh, came into the international political limelight in 2007 when an Indian Supreme Court said, that we are not going to let uh, Novartis extend its patent of, uh, for Glivec in India. We're going to, in fact, allow generic manufacturers in India to manufacture the drug more cheaply uh, than what Novartis intended to do in the region. So here's just a very quick clip of uh, 
a little publicity, uh, activist publicity video that MSF put out, which gives you a sense of the controversy very quickly. that obviously attracted worldwide attention because it not only mattered within India about whether generic drugs were going to be produced or not, we all know India has been one of the forefront leading manufacturers of life-saving generic drugs, not just within the region, but also all over the world, especially in Africa. MSF says 80% of its uh, HIV AIDS therapies are produced by Ind Indian generic manufacturers. So this is a case that mattered not only to activists, but to corporations were really keen on figuring out what the future would look like for cancer drugs. The battle had been fought over HIV drugs, and I'm going to give you some of that context, but now the battle begins to start revolving around cancer pharmaceuticals. What I'm going to say, unfortunately, uh, is not as optimistic as what a lot of the reportage about the Novartis controversy and its resolution has been. The New York Times reported uh, in 2013 that uh, when the Supreme Court said that Novartis would not be able to extend its patents in India uh, for Glivec, the New York Times said that for the first time an Indian uh, political institution had struck a blow for the world's global poor. Now for the first time, uh, the poor cancer patients of all over the world uh, could uh, think of beginning to afford generic therapies at low prices. The first thing I want to say is that, uh, and I will say this uh, through the course of the talk, is that this is not true. The Novartis case, in fact, is uh, somewhat deceptive because it seems like a forward movement for low-cost generic cancer pharma, but it really disguises how the battle for low-cost generics has been completely lost in the last decade. Uh, what all the, all the successes that had become possible after HIV-AIDS to reduce costs of certain uh, uh, therapies, those battles uh, were completely and comprehensively lost in 2005. And I'll uh, take you through that history a little bit to show why I think that the Novartis case really does nothing uh, in a, a big way, but it does point to something. Uh, the second thing I want to say is that uh, if you get past the Novartis case and look at some of the things that are happening in the last couple of years in, Indian, uh, in the Indian courts, we'll begin to see other possibilities that might emerge for low-cost generic uh, pharmaceuticals uh, regard, with regard to cancer. So those are the two things I just want to signpost before moving on. Those are the two of the things I want to talk about today. So the context for all of this is, of course, what happened around the HIV-AIDS crisis in the late 90s and the early 2000s. What happened, and many of you will be aware of this, but just to uh, reiterate it a little bit, uh, in about 2000, 2001, there were several legal battles. There were several contests over intellectual property for HIV-AIDS. Uh, uh, therapies. And uh, because of strong activist mo mobilization all over the world, there was a lot of pressure put on uh, US and Euro European pharmaceutical manufacturers, not least by the American government and the governments of South Africa, Brazil, and India. And what was achieved uh, was the, uh, the legitimation of generic pharma, uh, uh, HIV AIDS therapies uh, being produced uh, within India. Uh, it's, uh, it was uh, basically some of these battles allowed those pharmaceuticals to leak into global markets uh, and to be exported to Africa to be, and to be produced, in fact, at all uh, in India in the first place. So 
In 2000, before Indian generic manufacturers for HIV AIDS therapies came into the playing field, the cost per patient per year for uh, an ARV, according to MSF estimates for patients on ARV therapy, uh, was $10,000 per patient per year. Uh, Indian generic manufacturers, after some of these key legal battles uh, in the early 20th century, entered the market. And immediately, you see what is, within a few months, a massive price drop for these therapies in the global world, a 96% drop. And we start, uh, manufact we, we start seeing ARV prices drop to $360 per patient per year. And this is a massive drop that happens almost overnight because Indian manufacturers start making generic versions of several of the key ARV therapies. Uh, and uh, recent data indicates that 98% of American tax-funded PEPFAR therapies rely very significantly upon uh, generic ARVs <laughs> produced in India. So this is a, a graph from, uh, that the MSF brought out it, with regard to this price drop. You see a massive drop again happening very quickly that remains, uh, that, uh, that is sustained all the way till 2011. Something's happening now with these prices, and I'll come to that. But you see what happens when generic manufacturers are allowed to enter the uh, playing field, and what happens to prices when uh, you see that competition take place. <clears throat> so how is this possible in the first place? How are Indian generic manufacturers allowed legally and politically to make these low-cost therapies? And that's a key question, because why isn't this true in many other parts of the world? Why is it India that has this particular uh, role? That, why has India taken on this particular role? And its post-colonial history has a lot uh, to do with it. So uh, as all of you know, in the late 1940s, India is uh, decolonized and a new government comes into place. And this government is very, very keen on making sure that uh, healthcare is a priority uh, for its citizens. And also, uh, it's very keen on making sure that manufacturing happens internally, that industries are pr protected uh, by tariffs, by strong safeguards. And so in 1970, a report that took two decades to uh, be uh, worked out finally takes the place of law. And until this report, the Indian pharmaceutical scene uh, is dominated by MNCs, dominated by U US, American, uh, US, European pharmaceutical companies with very little domestic pharma capabilities. That changes because of this report. So what this report does is very simple, and many of you, again, might be aware of this. It changes patenting over pharmaceuticals from the product to the process of its manufacturing. And that's a tiny, tiny tweak which completely reshifts the history of pharmaceutical manufacturing. Uh, what it basically means is that what you're able to patent is not the final drug that is produced after all the chemical processes that have gone into it. What you're able to patent is the process through which you, the chemical process through which you came to that drug. Why is that important? Because now what an Indian generic manufacturer can do is come to that end product with a different manufacturing process and just patent that process. It's a very, very uh, pragmatic and uh, clever little tweak in the law, which basically has this massive implication for the Indian pharmaceutical manufacturing sector. It goes from being dormant with very little capability to becoming, as I'll show you statistic, one of the key players in uh, global pharma, especially with low-cost therapies. The second thing it does, and this is crucial to think about, uh, to know, to understand what's happening in the last two years, not in the uh, years before that, is that it just puts into law this provision for compulsory licensing, which basically, in short, means that an Indian, uh, uh, an Indian court, if it chooses to allow compulsory licensing, can uh, forcibly take away rights of patent from a, uh, a global pharmaceutical company and give it to an Indian company, regardless of whether that patent has expired or not, if a situation of public health emergency has occurred. Now, this has hardly ever been used in the world. Uh, these provisions exist in many countries. It hardly is ever used. It's begun to become used in the last couple of years in places like Thailand and India. And I'll come to talk about this at, towards the end. So what happens with the effects of this legislation? Uh, so in, at 1970, you see the Indian pharmaceutical uh, Manufacturers accounting for only 32% of its internal uh, uh, output and 68% is dominated by multinational pharma. By 1991, the pie looks very different. Uh, Indian manufacturers have suddenly, through these legislations, found the space to really make a big role uh, through the manufacture of generic drugs that it continues to do till the present. 
So this is all happening in India. Now, what happens in 2000 uh, uh, through the 90s and then culminating with this time uh, cover piece in 2001 is Glivec comes into public focus as this breakthrough drug for the treatment of CML. Uh, and this is a crucial, crucial drug, not only because it's a fantastic product, but also because it takes uh, shape at a turning point in the history of uh, pharmaceutical legislation in the world. It's patented in 1993. But it's, uh, it's being produced now. Uh, and that's a crucial thing to keep in mind, that date of patent, because things start changing very quickly in India in 1995. So remember, Glivec is patented in 1993 in the US. Uh, it, it's, uh, it comes to public attention. The Time magazine cover is from 2001. It uh, gets more and more popular in the popular imagination. But in 1995, everything changes in India. And that's a crucial shift in what generic manufacturing will look like in the future. A new patent regime comes into uh, play because India signs the WTO trade agreement. Now, the WTO agreement comes with an intellectual uh, property uh, sub uh, subset of clauses called the TRIPS agreement, which basically means that India now has to give up what it did with the 1970 Iyengar report. It has to give up the uh, uh, opening that it made for the pharmaceutical industry with the idea of the process patent. So it has to basically give up process patents. Now it has to give up process patents while at the same time accepting 20-year-long uh, patent monopolies uh, by US American, uh, US European pharmaceutical manufacturers. What's interesting about this also is that uh, the WTO says this is a big shift in your, uh, uh, in your regulatory regime. So we're going to give you 10 years to put this into place. So w uh, India signs the WTO in 1995, but India only has to start implementing it from 2005. So it's been implementing it from for the last nine years, which is why we haven't all heard about uh, what's going on with this. It's still fairly recent, but it means a major, major shift in the world of what generics look like globally. India basically is going to stop producing them uh, for any drugs that were manufactured after 1995. So any HIV therapies, any uh, cancer therapies discovered after 1995, India cannot uh, use the process, process patent uh, uh, tweak for that. So Glivec uh, and Novartis begin to see that this has happened. Uh, they realized this in about 2005-2006, that this uh, regulatory regime has changed so drastically. But they realized that their drug is patented in 93, which is just two years before uh, the, the in, uh, this uh, agreement comes into force. Right? So it's, there's a two-year gap, which means for drugs before 95, India can continue to produce generics, and Novartis doesn't like that. Novartis wants to make sure that even Glivec, a drug produced before 95, can get the same patent protections after 95. So it does what is well known in uh, IP watch circles all over the world, even in the US. Critics of uh, legal theorists, legal critics have written about this. It undertakes this strategy called evergreening, which basically, uh, and again, uh, many of you all might already know this, it's basically a trick through which uh, pharmaceutical companies extend their patents beyond the uh, time stipulated in the original agreement by tweaking the dosage, tweaking the bioavailability, by tweaking uh, a delivery mechanism. So in many different ways, pharmaceutical companies uh, add a little or subtract a little and uh, do something with the drug that makes uh, that allows them to again patent the new formulation for another, say, 20 years. Uh, this is called evergreening. This is a well-known strategy uh, both in the US as well as in the developing world. And that's what really the Glivec controversy is all about. It's not a controversy about whether India should produce generic, life-saving, low-cost drugs for the world. It's, whether, it's a controversy about whether Novartis should be allowed to evergreen Glivec in uh, the Indian, uh, in the Indian scenario. Uh, and so Novartis basically uh, sets out to do this. It says it tweaks the uh, uh, molecule for uh, Glivec, and then it says that now it has a 30% higher bioavailability than the original formulation. Hence, it has a higher efficacy. Uh, hence, it should be a new drug that should be protected for another 20 years within the Indian legal scenario. Uh, so no generics, and hence no cheaply flowing uh, Glivec all over the world. What Novartis didn't account for, unfortunately, and this is why it failed, was this small clause within the Indian uh, WTO agreement, 
Uh, and nobody quite knows who put this clause in. There's a lot of debate about its authorship, uh, but it was sneaked in a day before the legislation was passed. There's all kinds of conspiracy theories. Uh, but for what we know about it is uh, that it made Novartis uh, stumble for the first time uh, in a way that it did not have to do in the 40 other countries where it has extended its patent over Glivec. Uh, it's a clause that says that any, uh, uh, any discovery of a new form of an already known substance, which does not result in the enhancement of the known efficacy of that sus substance, does not constitute a new drug, and hence does not deserve a new patent. Uh, Glivec uh, and Novartis, Novartis's lawyers had said that it had 30% higher bioavailability, which resulted in more efficacy. All the, Indian, uh, all the Indian courts and the regulatory actors had to say was that bioavailability is not equal to if, uh, efficacy. And if that re uh, relationship is not obvious, then it is not a new drug. So, in, in, so what you basically need to know is that uh, they contested Novartis's criteria of efficacy. And because of this small clause, it said that this patent would not be extended beyond the time period it already had been. So Novartis was really blindsided by this. It uh, set out a huge, huge legal challenge to this because it was, and by Novartis and Glivec's controversy is important, is because it has a lot of public attention. And it also uh, is a test case for other evergreening challenges all over the world. So uh, Novartis has never lost one of these challenges, challenges uh, in the developing world. 40 other countries it succeeded. So it just uh, put forward a massive legal challenge at multiple fronts, uh, initiated many lawsuits at the same time. Uh, and its, its case was a simple one. Uh, it said that efficacy was not WTO compliant. So the WTO did not account for this little subclause that India had put in. Uh, and that it allowed the patent, contro uh, the controller general of patents in India, uncontrollable discretion. Uh, and it left corporations to the exercise of his whims and fancies. This is language from the depositions. And uh, the arbitrary exercise of his power. Uh, and then it went on to make another argument that scientific vagueness in legal language discriminated against the person of Novartis, denying it its fundamental right of equality before Indian law and violating its fundamental rights as persons. Now, corporate personhood is something uh, we've all heard about and talked about. In India, it has a very uh, 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 ambiguous definition still. Uh, but this, was, this went further than corporate personhood. It was attacking uh, Indian doctors, Indian regulators, Indian uh, legal actors, saying that they did not have the expertise that uh, was required to make decisions about efficacy, bioavailability, uh, and that they were vague and they uh, basically uh, exercised their power in an arbitrary manner. These are all, for social scientists, uh, absolutely gems because they rehearse old colonial tropes about scientific expertise. Uh, but I'm not going to get into that. And then Novartis made a claim for corporate philanthropy. And this is a recurrent uh, claim that uh, pharmaceutical companies make in the developing world that, oh, it doesn't really matter if it's expensive or cheap because we're really giving them away for free wherever they need it in the less developed countries. Uh, so we have this patient uh, outreach program. We have this CSR initiatives here. We have this in other places too. So whoever wants Glivec can just come to us and take it. Uh, and this is something that's worth keeping in mind and we'll talk about this. Uh, the Indian legal response was very harsh. It said that vagueness was uh, uh, not something that uh, they agreed to definitionally. Neither did they think that the patient controller of general, uh, the patient controller uh, was not an expert, uh, that he did not have the expertise to make these uh, determinations. And that uh, fundamental rights, which Novartis had uh, invoked in order to claim its uh, protection uh, were not meant for corporations, even though they might be persons. They were really meant for the Indian poor, uh, and they were uh, developed legally as an idea to safeguard the most fundamental of interests uh, against uh, racist, uh, sexual, uh, gendered oppression. Uh, so these were not meant for uh, protections of corporations. Uh, and it contested the idea that philanthropy was uh, a viable welfare, healthcare, public health mechanism. It said this by first looking at the statistics uh, for all its rhetoric about corporate philanthropy. Uh, GPAP, uh, the, the CSR initiative that Novartis had set out was reaching uh, not as many patients as one could hope uh, by any estimate. It was reaching uh, not even in the four digits. Uh, nor uh, was it actually extending uh, into the public health sector. So it was this uh, very rarefied uh, uh, 
uh, thing that you really had to know about. I never encountered in two years of fieldwork a patient that had managed to get anything out of uh, any of these initiatives, either by Novartis or Bayer. Uh, they were incredibly difficult to get. They needed a lot of know-how, needed a lot of connections. Uh, so corporate philanthropy was uh, really for the legal uh, response uh, rhetoric rather than the real public health tool or strategy. So what was the Novartis case really about then? Uh, it was not like the New York Times reported and other worldwide uh, 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 media outlets reported. It was not about ensuring cheap cancer pharmaceuticals for the global poor in the future. Why is it not about that? Uh, and for all that it, it, for all that it is, it's not about that because it does nothing to contravene India's uh, WTO obligations post uh, 2005 for drugs discovered after 1995. This is only a safeguard against evergreening of drugs di discovered before 95. So for all new innovative cancer pharmaceuticals for third line ARVs that are in the pipeline, uh, for some second line ARVs, these are not these are not protected. Uh, by India's WTO, uh, these are not, uh, these are not, uh, these won't be produced generically, and the Novartis case does nothing to contradict that. It is a move against including pre-1995 drugs uh, under WTO protections, and since uh, pharmaceutical companies often undertake uh, evergreening strategies, it is a move against that in the developing world. So for that, uh, we are grateful for it, uh, but not for what it seems to look like. So just to reiterate, it has no relevance for any oncology or any other drug discovered after 95. And we all know that so many breakthrough therapies have happened after this date. Uh, just to give you a sense, again, this is the MSF statistic uh, of what uh, the stipulations of the WTO uh, look like for HIV AIDS. Uh, so for the first and second line ARB therapies, you saw prices that remained under $400. Now, with the WTO uh, stipulations coming into effect, the third-line prices uh, for their treatments have risen astronomically very quickly. And this is something to keep in mind, again, for oncology drugs. Uh, Post-95, the ones that aren't protected will uh, be challenged. Uh, it'll be very challenging to keep them under price control of any strong uh, sort. So that's the Novartis case. Now I want to move on to a second set of second case, which actually looks very different from Glivec. It received almost no global media attention. But this is where the battle is being fought. And this is where the battle looks, uh, the stakes of the battle look extremely high. This is what will uh, decide whether low-cost pharmaceuticals are available uh, or, and will be produced by India or not. And this centers around Bayer's Nexavar drug, which many of you might be familiar with. Uh, and it happens in uh, India in the last three years when an Indian generic manufacturer, uh, Natco Pharmaceuticals, decides uh, to issue something called a compulsory uh, to seek something called a compulsory license from the Indian legal system. Now, as I said, compulsory licenses were, was this dormant provision uh, put in place in 1970, never really used for pharmaceuticals uh, since then. And given the WTO and what its effects were. Uh, Indian gener generic manufacturers began to see within compulsory licenses a possibility that might look uh, to uh, safeguard their uh, interests in the future. And what a compulsory license basically is, uh, again to reiterate, is an involuntary contract in legal terms uh, between uh, the seller of a patent and the buyer of a patent. So the seller being, uh, in this case, Bayer, uh, and uh, the drug in question being Nexavar, and the buyer of the patent in this case being an Indian, Natco, uh, Indian pharmaceutical company called Natco. So this is a, a compulsory license that enforces uh, uh, Bayer, uh, forces Bayer to give up its patent over Nexavar just in India, within the Indian context, and allow Natco Pharma to make the same drug at a fraction of its cost. Now, when can one do this? Of course, if this was happening with all drugs, this would raise massive international outcry. So it isn't... Uh, it isn't, oh sorry, it's got cut off the screen. Uh, it isn't for any drug at all in the world. It is for a specific subset of drugs uh, that one needs to prove. Uh, and that subset is uh, uh, those that have a, uh, let me see, can I? Uh, those that basically require, uh, uh, those that uh, constitute a public health emergency, to put it very bluntly. Uh, they can only be issued for drugs that, uh, uh, if, uh, if an Indian generic manufacturer can show that this is a drug that constitutes a public health emergency, it's a national public health crisis, 
then for that drug, a compulsory license question might be opened up. Secondly, the uh, Indian uh, generic manufacturer and the Indian legal team has to show that not only is this a very critical public health drug, it is also not being produced at a reasonable price by a global pharmaceutical corporation. Um, and it also has to show that this global <coughs> pharmaceutical corporation is not interested in working its patent in India. Uh, in other words, that this global pharmaceutical corporation is not even importing uh, this drug to sell to Indian patients. It really is using its patent control in India to block Indian generic manufacturers from buying it and these drugs leaking into a global market. So if all these criteria are fulfilled, then and only then can a compulsory license be issued. Uh, and this, uh, again, is not, uh, this can only happen for very few drugs. And what is interesting to note here is that cancer begins for the first time within the, within the Indian legal scenario to be thought of as a public health emergency. Uh, it is uh, now being talked about in the same terms as HIV AIDS was, uh, in the same terms that allowed HIV AIDS uh, to be, uh, to be uh, allowed as an exceptional case within WTO. Uh, so the way that in 2000-2001 in USA, Brazil uh, and in many other countries HIV-AIDS was made exceptional was because it was called a public health crisis. And so for HIV-AIDS and HIV-AIDS only, uh, uh, pharmaceutical companies had to give over their patients and exert price controls and allow for generic manufacturing. Uh, now, for the first time, the Indian court started talking about cancer in the same way, saying that it was a public health emergency, that Bayer was not importing the drug in India, uh, making it available for Indi Indian patients, and that it was not affordably priced. Now, Bayer again contested this in the same way that Navartis contested its, uh, the Glivec case. It said that reasonability, price, and publics were legal words that needed to include Bayer's rights as a corporation and that its R&D costs uh, for these drugs were massively high and that something like this would destroy R&D uh, uh, impetuses for uh, global pharmaceutical corporations and a hostile third world environment was making R&D very difficult for pharmaceuticals all over the world. And again, the same uh, argument for, global, uh, for corporate philanthropy, that it was anyway uh, bringing in a small number of drugs and giving it away for when it was uh, asked to give it away. Why do you think Beard didn't point out that Cancer can never be a public emergency because it's not contagious. Uh, Simon, what do you mean by that? Cancer cannot be a public emergency because it's not going to spread like Ebola or HIV. Right? And that's been the long, old uh, distinction between uh, infectious, non-infectious, communicable, non-communicable diseases, and whether public health uh, emergencies should be restricted to communicable diseases and infectious diseases. Uh, it's a good question. It's an open question. Uh, the Indian uh, courts say that that's not the only criteria for emergency. Uh, we have a massive cancer uh, population in the region that we're talking about here. Uh, we have very little uh, uh, drugs uh, in terms of the pricing, that, uh, pricing regime that is at present. We have absolutely no capability as a national government to make these drugs, drugs available. That's another definition of emergency. So you're right. It's a new definition of what a public health crisis looks like. And part of the resistance to it is on the uh, communicable, non-communicable lines. Yeah. Um, and that's, that controversy still remains open. There's no closed resolution to that. Um, so then the next of our judgment basically uh, went through and it uh, allowed Natco Pharma to uh, make net, uh, ne uh, allowed Natco Pharma to start making generic Nexovar for uh, a fraction of the price, and Natco would pay a six percent royalty for all its profits to Bayer. It would, uh, and in some sense, one can think about it as a win-win scenario, right? So Bayer was not even uh, was not interested in profits in India. It wasn't even selling the drugs uh, there uh, at, a, at in a uh, in a sense that it would uh, make a lot of money for it in that region. So for the first time, it was making profits in the Indian market. For the first time, it was even getting some money for this drug. Uh, so in one sense, it can be thought of as a win-win for both. Bayer was beginning to get more money, uh, and uh, Indian patients were able to get more drugs. But Bayer's, uh, and this is what IP and pharma uh, watchers have begun to realize, Bayer's not interested only in profits. You, uh, many of these pharmaceutical companies are not interested in making profits in the third world. That is not the market that they're interested in. I've done interviews with pharmaceutical consultants in New York City. 
they are not interested in treating the third world as a market for its drugs. They're interested in protecting their patents in the third world. What that means basically is that the primary motive for the strong battle for patent rights in many of these countries is to make sure that drugs manufactured generically don't start leaking into the world market, don't start becoming available in the US, in Africa, outside India. Um, and that's why the patent battles are strong. It's not because it's a, uh, it's a cutback to profits for corporations in the third world. It's a cutback to profits only for them in the first world if the drugs start leaking back. <laughs> So what happens to prices? Uh, after this controversy, uh, in the United States, Glivec treatment costs somewhere around the region of 90,000 annually. In India, it costs about $1,000 annually. Uh, Nexavar in the US costs somewhere around the region of $130,000 per patient annually. In India, it costs about 1,200 to 1,700 annually. So it's not cheap yet, but it's uh, a fraction of the price. <laughs> So what has the U.S. response been? Uh, the U.S. response after the Nexavar controversy, even though it didn't make big waves uh, in the media, it made massive waves in U.S. policy and governmental circles. Uh, immediately, the White House uh, and its uh, uh, main uh, IP and trade uh, body, the U.S. Trade Representative's Office, put massive, massive pressure on the Indian government. It put India on a rogue priority watch list for countries uh, that do not conform to globally acceptable patent regimes. Um, uh, an, a non-timely probe was initiated and has been in initiated, is ongoing right now, uh, to invest investigate Indian wrongdoings in creating trade barriers. Uh, in 2013, uh, there was a bipartisan letter signed by 170 members of the US Congress to President Obama that said, uh, that called this, uh, in very dramatic language, the chilling effect on global R&D investments both in the US and in India as a result of IP policies could have a significant neg negative impact on jobs and investments in the United States. Uh, it's interesting that that uh, paragraph from the bipartisan letter is taken straight out of a pharmaceutical market report by Pfizer. So the language is exactly the same, uh, perhaps surprising, perhaps not. Uh, perhaps not surprising, the uh, undersigner of the letter, the bipartisan letter is Eric Paulson, Republican Minnesota who's uh, known to have $94,000 in campaign contributions from pharmaceutical manufacturers. Ron Wyden uh, is a member of the uh, uh, probe and influential in setting it up. Uh, six, uh, indirectly, six, about $62,000 in campaign contributions. And Orrin Hatch, Republican Utah, one of the largest uh, uh, takers of pharmaceutical funds uh, in the US political establishment, uh, is the other member in charge of the probe. Uh, that's one uh, arm of the U.S. response. The other arm is a really troubling and really uh, dramatic one. What did U.S. Uh, pharmaceutical companies do then uh, in the months following the next of our case? Uh, at very lucrative uh, 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 estimates, they just started buying out wholesale Indian pharmaceutical generic manufacturers. Uh, so uh, these are manufacturing companies set up as uh, for the last 50, 60 years. So Daichi Sankyo just bought Ranbaxi, a massive Indian generic manufacturer. Sanofi Aventis bought Shanta Biotech, I bought, by, bought Nicholas Piramel. So now we just have uh, a simple all-out buyout strategy. Uh, these were very lucrative sums for the domestic manufacturers. So there's been a lot of concern in Indian policy circles about why these estimates are these are probably not the amount of money they're going to be making back from any of these companies. They're actually uh, never going to make that sum back from the output of the generic manufacturer. So where is that money going to be made back from, firstly, and why are they buying these out in that place? The answer, very simply, is IP. And cases such as Nexavar, cases such as Glivec uh, to some extent. So I'm coming towards the end here. Uh, in 2013, something very dramatic happened, and this is still unresolved. Uh, three big drugs, uh, Herceptin, Spricel, Exempra, uh, because, of a, because of a lot of strong pressure by a, a bunch of Indian activist uh, cancer support groups, uh, the, uh, one branch of the Indian Health Ministry decided to start thinking about issuing compulsory licenses for these three big oncology drugs. Um, and this is, has left the Indian government paralyzed almost internally. One branch of the government says this is amazing. Another branch says this is too much. And they've just been fighting each other for the last year. Um, so no one quite knows what will happen uh, with this. But this is something to watch out for. Uh, these are three major oncology drugs, as you might know, especially Herceptin after Glivex. So 
what will happen with this has a lot uh, of uh, will have a lot of impact in the future. What's also interesting about the Herceptin Exemplus Price cell case is that it's uh, uh, they're invoking a different part of the 1970s Anger Act, and this is a uh, act that makes explicit what we're talking about. They're making explicit here the idea that uh, cancer might be thought of as emergency, mm -hmm. as a circumstance of extreme urgency. So a lot of the older ones, like you said, are uh, communicable diseases, uh, AIDS, <laughs> HIV, uh, TB, malaria, and other epidemics. Is it even possible to think of cancer as a public health <coughs> epidemic is an open question. Possibly not, but if uh, legally, yes, it has incredible potential in terms of uh, drug manufacturing. So what does an emergency look like in a legal scenario versus a medical scenario might be an interesting question to think about. And it also uh, is an important uh, caveat because if it is thought of as a public health emergency in the same way that HIV-AIDS was, a new part of the WTO uh, uh, declaration can be invoked, which was signed by the uh, by the developing countries of the world, Brazil, India being chief amongst them, the Doha Declaration, which basically says that uh, in cases of compulsory licenses, developing countries can export to other developing countries. So India can not only produce for India, uh, it can produce for uh, regions of Africa that don't have the capability for making this drug cheaply. Uh, this is, again, a, a, a development that will give pharmaceutical companies lots of pause. Like I said, the main thing they're concerned about is making sure that drugs don't leak out of India. Whatever happens in India, they'll get passed. But they're really concerned about making sure it doesn't get out. Um, the possibility of this being invoked, it hasn't been invoked yet, uh, is going to be another key battle in the next year or two. It's already kind of coming into place. So finally, uh, I just want to point out to one uh, uh, key development that happened around Herceptin. Uh, what happened with Herceptin is that after these three uh, these three organizations put pressure on the Indian uh, on the Indian government to uh, allow generic manufacturing, Roche, that has patent over Herceptin, unilaterally decided to drop its patent. It just said, uh, "Whatever, we're not even fighting this battle. Uh, let it expire. We don't care." Uh, and this raised a lot of uh, 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 curiosity among a lot of people watching the space. Um, and uh, one of the theories about why Roche was so laissez-faire about dropping the patent and not fighting this battle was that, uh, as we all know, Herceptin is a part of new drugs that is very difficult to manufacture generically. These are large molecule biologics uh, that can only, and this is at least the pharmaceutical uh, explanation, company's explanation of the phenomenon, I'm not sure, uh, how correct or incorrect that is, but that you cannot really uh, produce a generic of a big uh, of a large molecule drug like Herceptin. What you can only produce is a biosimilar. And if you think about biosimilars, uh, which are not necessarily copies, but just similar to Herceptin, uh, questions of quality control really become absolutely crucial to think about. Uh, and then there's going to be a whole new set of challenges about whether Indian generic manufacturers should be allowed to make drugs with uh, questionable quality, uh, control, um, and that remains an open question. So what these biologic molecules have uh, the ability to do is change the terms of the conversation in a way that we haven't anticipated yet. So what would that look like, uh, especially for this in relation to the fact that uh, global pharmaceuticals are just buying Indian, uh, uh, the largest Indian manufacturers that have any biologic uh, manufacturing capabilities at all. Uh, the smaller ones are being left out, and the smaller ones really can't manufacture these drugs. So this is an interesting development that we don't quite know uh, what to do with. And this is, again, going to be a battle that's going to be fought in the next year or two. So to basically summarize, and I want to leave some time for questions, I'll uh, summarize quickly. Uh, <clears throat> the WTO has significantly hurt small pharma, that is Indian generic manufacturers, ability to manufacture cheap generics in and for the developing world. Uh, what like the what like I was saying about the Glivec controversy, drugs produced after 1995, discovered after 1995, sorry, uh, do not have uh, patent process patent protection. So what this will look like is only very uh, recently coming into focus. Very little has been written about this. Very little concern has been expressed in the public uh, media about what this means for new HIV/AIDS therapies, what it means for new oncology formulations in developing countries' context. Uh, I'm surprised that very little has been written about, but one can hope that this will be written about very soon. Uh, for now, bowing to US and WTO pressure, in India will no longer produce new life-saving generic ther therapies for any drugs discovered after 95. That's the status quo. 
but compulsory licenses around new cancer drugs might allow for a new opening. Uh, and Thailand's begin to, uh, begun to start uh, uh, experimenting with this. They've thought of uh, issuing a couple of compulsory licenses uh, for oncology drugs as well as for HIV AIDS drugs. Uh, other developing countries are beginning to pay attention and start thinking about whether they want to do this too. Uh, so compulsory licenses, uh, it's been around, it's never really been used, but they're getting used more and more because of concerns, uh, post-WTO concerns about drug pricing. And finally, biologics might completely change the terms of the game, uh, putting, pharma, uh, putting power firmly in hand of the biggest manufacturers, given that they, have the one, they are the ones often with the ability to sign up with biotech manufacturing companies, partner with them, and create these molecules. So I'll stop there for now. Thank you. what the response was when the larger farmers started coming in and buying up the generic manufacturers, whether there are laws for international companies purchasing and what the outcry or the responses were in terms of that, because obviously big profits mm -hmm. helped everybody, but what was the bigger public number? That's a great question, and that's also very much related to uh, why India signed the WTO in the first place. So there's been a shift of governmental emphasis, what's classically called the neoliberalization of the economy, of the Indian economy. Uh, since the 90s. So in around 2001, uh, India started allowing for foreign direct investment into these sectors. Uh, these were protected sectors uh, till, till the late 80s, uh, and this was not legally possible to do. So those laws were changed at the same time. So this is an Indian government that is uh, uh, a set of Indian governments since the 90s that is more interested in creating a free trade environment, creating uh, alliances with WTO, uh, creating alliances with American manufacturing companies, so this is a government that's becoming less and less protectionist around these industries. So uh, there has been concern, but the governmental policies have shifted to allow it. Uh, there's a new government that's come into place this year. There's, uh, it's, again, very much come into uh, uh, power based on the promise of open, uh, open trade, uh, free uh, play between global and domestic uh, companies. So uh, this is not going to be rolled back. This is only going to uh, uh, get bigger. Uh, the Indian Prime Minister came a couple of months ago and sat down with the pharma companies' uh, representatives here, as well as uh, the, uh, the people on the slides. Uh, it's, it's kind of unsure where it will head in the next few months. His general policy line, the Indian, new Indian Prime Minister, is open markets, uh, although he has said certain things about protecting the drug sector. So it's an open question, yeah. There's a new trade agreement being negotiated for our Asian countries, um, and it, I presume that it, that, that agreement is going to cover China. Right. And I guess the question about China, do you know how much generic manufacturing goes on in China and whether, whether there's any concern uh, about that country? That's a good question. I'm not sure. Uh, the IP laws, I know, are different. Uh, so it's kind of uneven in the way that the Indian story is developing there. But it's, it's the key players till now have been uh, India and Brazil in terms of uh, supplying drugs to public health initiatives in regions uh, such as Africa. Uh, is that going to change? I'm not sure. Uh, I think that's actually a great question. I need to look further into it. Uh, but China hasn't been the main supplier for uh, cheap drugs yet. Will, is that a new possibility? Perhaps, actually. I, I think they supply a lot of chemicals that go into the manufacturing yeah. process. But, but the actual manufactured drug, uh, not yet. But they could, if they're already supplying the, the raw ingredients, they could. Yeah. On the spectrum of patent protection, where is the US? Is it at one fringe compared to other uh, Gulf countries? Not really. So the US uh, is interesting. It's about. Uh, representative of most developed countries in terms of its patent regime. Uh, there are provisions for compulsory licenses within even US law. Uh, so some of these laws look very similar. Uh, the Indian legal system uh, was learning from the British and the American system uh, in the 1950s when it was developed. So some of these provisions are very much uh, mirroring uh, each other. Uh, compulsory licenses haven't been used in the way uh, that they're coming to be used globally. But there, there has been some recent uh, controversies and uh, possibilities of using compulsory licenses even within the US case. Uh, I'm just beginning to track that. I've just read a few papers that uh, have been tracking the growing use of compulsory licenses in the US uh, world. 
Uh, but that's, yeah, that's another place where things are headed. Yeah. yeah. How, how has uh, research been going in India during this period in terms of creating new intellectual properties? Are there any provisions in these uh, laws and, and uh, regulations that have, have uh, helped that or, or somehow address that? That's a great question. So uh, Indian biotech, uh, so for generic manufacturing, India has had capability for a while. Uh, but for new biotech manufacturing, it's only developing capability in the last decade or so. Uh, and it had begun, so for Herceptin, uh, about four Indian generic manufacturers said, uh, after Roche said, let's, the let's let the patent expire, four said that we're going to actually go and try and make this. Uh, so uh, this surprised a lot of people because they didn't think many of the Indian manufacturing companies had the uh, R&D capability for this. Uh, but they, uh, uh, one of them is about to come to market. So this is exactly the moment where we're going to find out whether the R&D capabilities have evolved in the way that they're at least claiming uh, that they have. Uh, yet, uh, so what we're also beginning to see is a lot of partnering between US pharmaceutical companies, uh, between uh, domestic Indian pharmaceutical companies and small biotech research uh, groups in the US. So that's another possibility, because indigenously, since we don't have the most advanced biotech capability, alliances with the US on that uh, scale might allow for biotech expertise to uh, leak into the Indian generic market. Uh, that's, again, threatened by the big buyouts, buyouts though. Uh, traditionally, it's the big uh, five, seven Indian generic manufacturers that have any ability to manufacture something like Receptin. Uh, since those are the ones being bought out, uh, it uh, remains to be seen if the ones that are not being bought out can actually do the same thing too. Uh, so it's coming to market now. Uh, I think it might have just come to market. Receptive, right? Generic receptive. So uh, yeah, we'll figure out what's going on with that soon. Uh, with the companies that have been bought out, the production companies, are they, are they going to continue to produce anything? Or is the expectation that they're going to close them down? The expectation is that uh, they're going to uh, use them as uh, back-end. Yeah, the easiest, smallest drugs. They don't need them to make the large-scale uh, drugs that they're making. Yeah. Uh, so it raises interesting questions uh, about the R&D uh, world too, right? So whether uh, India should be developing R&D, that's where the Indian government is saying that the Indian generic manufacturers should head. Uh, it's developing slowly, but also what about the claim uh, that the uh, American pharmaceutical companies are making that they're actually not being able to do R&D because of these developments in the third world? That's an interesting claim that has also been uh, con contested very strongly uh, by people like the MSF. They uh, published recent studies that show that each and every one of the R&D cost estimates uh, by the U.S. corporations have been massively inflated. One study shows it's usually about 10 to 20 percent. Another studies uh, said that uh, on the one hand, it's not just the inflated cost, that US taxpayer money is actually paying for a lot of the R&D anyway. Much, much of this research is being done in the universities. Brian Drucker, who did uh, Glivec, has not earned a single dollar from Glivec. And he's come out uh, and said that uh, I'm, not, I'm very much on support of the Indian legal response uh, as the scientist who discovered the drug because uh, as a cancer researcher, I know that that's not the moment that a drug is discovered. It's incremental over a long period of time. Uh, so I don't believe that patents should, patent should, patent should be that strongly held. And I certainly don't believe that it's Chinese research. So uh, this, yeah, this R&D question is going to be... Uh, is being hotly debated. I mean, a lot of R and D cost is in the running the clinical trials, like the phase three trials, that involve hundreds or thousands of individuals. And you would think that those kinds of trials would be a lot less expensive to run in India than, than they are in the United States and Europe. And they're already doing that. Uh, that is another set of ethical questions. They're doing that with very little informed consent. Uh, entire sets of uh, slum-dwelling populations have been turned into permanent clinical trial populations in India and Bombay. Uh, so the regulatory framework there is also slightly weak, unfortunately. I want to thank you for making the long and dangerous trip over from Dartmouth <laughs> College today in the ice. And, and I learned a whole lot. I'm sure everybody else agrees that uh, this was really an interesting and uh, helpful conversation. Thank, thank you. you.